Hello everyone, this is Gabe Sanders, and if you haven't heard from me before, I used to host a podcast called Miss Radio. That was from when I was in graduate school at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, hence Miss Radio. Uh, that podcast was about public policy, and so is this one, but I'm calling this The Implications. And it's about what you might have guessed. Um, it's about the implications of public policy work being done by people on the frontier. So the plan is to interview professionals, academics, activists, and other people who are doing awesome work to improve the relationship between humans and the natural world, um, as well as this strange miasma we call an economy. Uh, we need to make it work for all three of the things in that equation. So whether it's renewable energy or decarbonization, creating market incentives for green technology, creating affordable housing, equity of socioeconomic opportunity, or revolutionizing the food system that sustains our species, um, along with many others. I'll be asking people about their research, their findings, their observations, and policy recommendations, and discussing the implications. We're starting with Dr. Katherine Brinkley. She is the Assistant Professor of Community and Regional Development at my undergraduate alma mater, the University of California at Davis. Her work centers around a concept called One Health, which considers health shared by humans, animals, and their shared environment. Her latest research focuses on food systems and municipal general plans, with the broad question of how do food systems reorient diets and land use? The implications of Dr. Brinkley's work, you'll have to listen to find out. Without further ado, here's Dr. Catherine Brinkley. I'm here with Catherine Brinkley, Dr. Catherine Brinkley. Dr. Doctor, actually. Dr. Doctor, yeah, <laughs> several times over. Um, and that's going to be the first topic of conversation. Dr. Brinkley, mm -hmm. how did you end up here at UC Davis? Do you have the short answer? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you can give me a short one because I'm sure it's pithy. But. Yeah. Um, the short one is that I was really interested in animals and public health, and I view health as shared with humans, animals, and the environment. So One health. One health. Yeah. The broadest way to study that um, with agency, so you have ability to practice, is to get a veterinary degree. So my veterinary degree is a very broad public health degree. And then the broadest way to influence the environment is through planning. So my PhD is in planning, and I, I can do land use design with both of those that protects wildlife and has a big macro view in terms of that urban-rural interface. Right. Okay. The so, long answer is way longer. <laughs> well, I, I am curious as to what, what the inflection points were. Mm -hmm. So... From your bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. biology and Russian studies. Yeah. What led you to the next step? Um, I think that I'm the virology. a virology. Virology. Yeah. I'm a creature of opportunity, and I went to a women's college, Wellesley, and they just had wonderful professors in Russian studies, and I love Russian film because it's so dark so dark it's almost comical and it just it was really fun to read Russian literature and I had a study abroad program in Siberia we were studying ecology which was fascinating I teach a study abroad program here at UC Davis and I really believe in study abroad is an awesome way to open minds so I didn't hold myself to a path and then I always wanted to be a veterinarian and it um 
and I, I had a fellowship to study zoo design, so I was doing zoo architecture. So if you ever go to the Shanghai Zoo, I worked for the Jane Goodall Institute there and designed the orangutan. <laughs> I'm going to wait exhibit. a little while before I go, <laughs> but I do. I have, a, I have a goal of getting to China at some point in the next few years. Yeah, I have some friends over there. Oh. Now's not a great time. <laughs> no, maybe not now. But that zoo exhibit has a. Um, uh, the the orangutan can pull a, a tree branch on one side and the visitors can pull on the other side so they can feel how strong he is and wow. it gives him some enrichment. Very cool. But it turns yeah. out the world of zoo design is pretty small. And yeah. when I got to veterinary school, I also realized that being a veterinarian is very dangerous. You're treating animals with rabies. Mm-hmm. You can get kicked by horses quite easily. Yeah. And um, tigers, tigers, lions, bears. Yes, yes, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> and oh at that point, my need for the adrenaline rush had kind of run its course. And I really fell in love with planning as a discipline because it's just so big and there's so many possibilities. So most of my work now is in planning, thinking about socioeconomics, but also with an eye to um, agriculture, animal agriculture, and um, and wild spaces as well. Yeah. So most of my research is on how urban areas can fit together with non-urban areas and how that increases the health of both systems. The city of Davis had one of the nation's first urban growth boundaries, which means that the city said we will not sprawl. And that in and of itself is a huge step. And then they've done, just Davis alone, a lot of work with um, riparian restoration, so restoring Puda Creek. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of cities are now realizing that they need to contain growth, allow growth to go up as opposed to out, that that has all kinds of economic as well as ecological benefits. That's That's the big thing. A quick note about UGBs, or Urban Growth Boundaries. They contain sprawl and preserve wildlands as well as land for agriculture, but they can also result in relative scarcity or even unaffordability of housing within that boundary. When you set a limit on growth, what choices do you have? You can either do infill or you can upzone and build upward. This has been a hot topic here in California with bills in the Senate, SB 827 and SB 50, failing recently over the last couple of years because of inadequate support from local governments. People like their local control and something like SB 50 would have forced upzoning around transportation. Now, this isn't a bad idea necessarily, at least on paper, but local control is cherished and local governments and the people that they serve want to be able to make laws of their own and decide exactly where and what to build on their own. Something to keep in mind. Uh, It's difficult to say exactly how SB 50 would have affected individual cities, but it is very clear that a One Health approach, if promoted at the local level, could accomplish the same goals as SB 50, but without the top-down blanket approach of statewide legislation. Keep a UGB and upzone where necessary, according to what the locals want. All right, back to the interview. So Davis was one of the first cities with an urban growth boundary, which contains sprawl. And then they also purchase development rights from farms, which means that the farms will stay in agriculture on the edge and not develop. And a lot of cities and counties are doing this, uh, which is good because it's a very local approach. Right. So that, that's a good example of local control working. Yes. Um, and I, I would assume this is a relatively 
progressive town in terms of the values that it holds and expresses mm-hmm. in legislation. I mean, I come from wine country where it's hard to get anything, uh, really anything done that could compromise housing values mm-hmm. or just the general peace and quiet that people come have come to appreciate. Mm-hmm. NIMBYism is alive and well in mm-hmm. Sonoma County. Um, when I think about city and regional planning, respecting one health, do you see that outside of towns like Davis? Where else in California are you seeing that kind of respect for I'm delighted you asked because we have this really ambitious project where we have taken every city plan in California, 485 of them, and every county plan. And these plans are 800 pages long. We've extracted all the texts out of them, and we're using natural language processing machine learning to read them for their contents because... You're not just having interns do it. <laughs> no, because interns couldn't. Um, I mean, even I struggle when I read the city of Davis plan because it's big and it's long. And you can imagine with California right now, you have issues around managed retreat and fire and um, coastal planning. And those plans have everything in them. Anything you can think of is in there. And we don't have a searchable database Mm. of plans. So if you were Sonoma County and you're thinking, I want to preserve property values, but we need to develop low um, and very low income housing, that's state mandated. Where do we put it? How do we do it? Now you'd be able to look through our database and see how other places have done it. So where would I find this database? Uh, um, We are currently working with the governor's office of planning and research to um, host it online. So it is not yet available, but in the coming months, I really hope it will be. And the California Air Resources Board is another partner on that project in housing and community development as well. So I imagine it'll be several state agencies um, working together. Okay. Um, Which is going to change planning in California. God, it sure as heck needs it. Something to keep in mind about general plans. California state law enacted through SB 1000 in 2016 now requires the cities address the following eight elements in their general plans. Land use, circulation, housing, conservation, open space and parks and recreation, safety, noise, and environmental justice. Just for reference, the general plan in Davis last amended in 2007 addresses all of these elements more than adequately according to my reading of it, at least. For some contrast, Flint, Michigan's master plan, published in 2013, only has eight total uses of the word water, with phrasing like this, quote, we imagine Flint as a city that provides for the fundamental needs of all people and responsibly uses and respects our land, water, air, and energy resources, end quote. That sounds like all imagination and no plan, and the crisis we've seen the lead in Flint's water system and the continued infrastructural debacle that it is, along with human lives, children's lives, being utterly disregarded by public officials. That represents a failure to plan, and as Ben Franklin might have said, failure to plan is planning for failure. What are the other priorities you need to see addressed from your perspective of One Health? What else would you prioritize? Um... Well, you know, we're seeing, um, I think, disease surveillance, but that's really Mm. 
international in scope. There's not, I mean, most of the emerging diseases are zoonotic, meaning coming from animals, including coronavirus. And we are constantly cutting funding to veterinarians and animal researchers who do that kind of work that that can help contain and understand new outbreaks. So So that that goes beyond just land use. This is just allocation of Resources, resources to study um, disease, but it is also management of resources because those animal populations come in contact with humans at the rural, urban, and wildlands. It's beneficial to daily health because you're not sitting in a car driving an hour and a half to get to work and then an hour and a half to get home. Yeah. And all of that only happens when cities decide to create housing and jobs and housing for their workforce and transportation systems. Mm. So it's it's huge. It's a huge big picture issue. Yeah, one of the big things right now that is on the ballot, I think on March 3rd in Sonoma County, is the smart train mm-hmm. and funding for it, essentially. And there are, there's, there are millions of dollars being tossed in both directions mm-hmm. to either block its funding or mm-hmm. to protect it. And it's... There are no alternatives being offered by mm-hmm. the people who oppose it, and I, it just makes me wonder where where their rationale really comes from other than it is money poorly spent. Mm. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that kind of tra- transportation infrastructure? Um, called mass transit. But. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not a so planning has several subdisciplines, and sure. I would fall in the environmental planning subdiscipline, mm-hmm. which unfortunately does not have a ton of overlap with the okay. transportation planning. So I'm going to stay out of that conversation. <laughs> That's but, fair. But I will say the bigger picture, which is another threat to One Health, is um, climate change and climate mitigation, and that is very much some of my research as well, where we're looking at how other countries like Sweden decrease their emissions by 60%. Mm. Um, There's lots of examples of countries that have drastically reduced their emissions and they did it well before the Kyoto Protocol. They did it in the 70s and 80s and they did it through local policies that made economic sense that we are completely ignoring, unfortunately. To to your knowledge, did they have the same level of kind of corporate influence over policymaking legislation? They did, but it went in a different way. So, I mean, what happened in these countries is the oil crisis was a big scare because their industries were dependent on oil um, for energy. And so it was a combination of national and especially municipal decisions that said, look, we can't have power shut off. This is not going to work to have energy prices tripled overnight. We need to radically change where we get our energy and reduce the energy and campuses and military bases have made these same very smart decisions yeah. to have central centralized energy systems. So instead of every building having its own AC and boiler, you have one central chilling system, one central um, heat system that can pump the heat out to all of the buildings. The system that Dr. Brinkley just described has existed in Europe and the Middle East for millennia. You do find it in the U.S. as well, sometimes called combined heating and power when uh, heating at the municipal level and energy distribution are combined into one system. Uh, But these networks just aren't in as wide of use because in the United States, a lot of our utilities are privatized and private corporations and their investors prioritize upfront and short-term profits. 
CHP, combined heating and power, along with district heating systems, often take a while to turn a profit. And so in the United States, where capitalism is king, that just isn't as appealing. One thing that might make it a little more appealing, though, in the future is the fact that these systems are really easily adaptable to renewable energy sources. One system in St. Paul, Minnesota, actually runs off of the controlled incineration of biomass and other municipal waste sources. So it's really just a matter of municipal planning and incentivizing investment in the future, rather than just short-term returns. This sounds like a good transition into the idea of the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. and your assertion that it is <laughs> pig shit, a <Yeah>. fallacy. <laughs> Um, let me start by kind of defining the commons because there are common pool resources like we all share an energy system like the district heating or energy system that I was speaking about earlier. Yeah. Um, and then there's commons as in public space and true commons are uh, jointly managed by a group of individuals. So there's some debate is a, is a park a commons it's managed by the state not really a group of individuals, but people sit on the board. So there's all this gray zone with what is or isn't a commons to begin with. The reason I um, take such umbrage with Garrett Hardin is because he wrote this article in the 70s that was published in Science, and it was a sloppily written article that didn't draw um, from data. And that's fine. The real problem is that his article, The Tragedy of the Commons, which says that if we allow people to use a space, like a park, for example, they will just overuse it. And so, and they'll degrade the resources that are there. And the, the big picture you always see is people grazing sheep and then too many sheep because everyone wants to get mm -hmm. the most out of the system. And then sure enough, you know, there's no more grass to be grazed and the system collapses. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one, many cities have had commons precisely for grazing animals because animals were an integral part of early cities. We needed them for transportation, for food, um, and, and the commons worked. Um, so Hardin's whole premise is that people can't collectively manage anything. We need to privatize. We need to mm -hmm. just sell the parks. And then he also says um, poor people shouldn't have children. The, the world is a commons and... Um, only, you know, we need to impose some rules about who gets to live here and how. So that, that's, that's him. And, and what I think is most unfortunate is that this uh, very catchy title, Tragedy of the Commons, has been picked up and is still widely cited. And it's not widely cited because it's widely critiqued still. It's widely cited because fields of, of economics, of planning, uh, biology, environmental studies, they continue to build on it as if it's the cornerstone. Meanwhile, there's a, a researcher, Eleanor Ostrom, who assembled hundreds, if not thousands, of case studies on commons and governance systems. She won uh, a Nobel Prize in economics, the first woman. Um, she, she's incredible, and she is very well cited, but I think Hardin is, is just as well cited, and that's, that's a that is the real tragedy, that academia is, has not latched on to good evidence-based science and is taking it forward. Instead, there's just this salient 
sloppily put together, I wouldn't even call it a theory, kind of a prop, knee-jerk proposition that seems to be very popular I mean, still. <laughs> without getting too deep into politics, I can hear pretty clear echoes of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That idea of there, limiting the use of co- so-called common resources mm-hmm. to those who are able to use it wisely or people with some some objective established version of good judgment mm-hmm. um i like i said i don't want to get too deep into that and mm-hmm. pick sides but it's pretty clear that that has led us to where we are now yeah um and privatizing things like uh, can, can you give me a good example of what a privatized common would be sure. in city of davis for instance well oh i was gonna i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you a historical example so the reason i use the word pig shit (laughs) in the title is because a lot of early cities in order to process waste they had these big piggeries so new york central park was a piggery it was a waste feeding operation where um you know the irish ran waste feeding operations african-americans you know the whole it, it was lower class lower income people and, um, and that was the commons, and it worked really well for the city in terms of processing slops um, and, and keeping the city clean. But you can also imagine that New York in the 1800s was very eager for gentrification and to move hmm. those piggeries out because they smell. Yeah. And there was no sewer system. There were no garbage men at the time. And many cities, many cities around the world still operate with pigs and goats as the backbone of their waste systems. No kidding. Uh, Cairo, for example. um, uh, The Zabaline still collect um, and process organic uh, material, and they have very high recycling rates because of the way that they do it. But their their waste feeding operations also have amazing views over the pyramids. No kidding. So th- those are commons in the city that serve an ecological and socioeconomic purpose. And there's this desire to kind of sanitize the city. And who owns these processing areas? Yes, and to, to privatize those processing areas and redevelop them. The same way that New York's Central Park was redeveloped. So Cairo's m- municipal or city government owns the, the plant. Or the processing area, the animals. No, these are who, these are squatter squatter towns. So I, th- there's a movement to privatize the waste processing. Yes, yes, and they even tried but to privatize. But it's not privatized yet. They no, well, they tried to privatize it, and they hired a, a Dutch company and paid them millions of dollars. And what they realized is that many of the streets are so narrow and so steep that. Um, waste collection couldn't happen there. So Hmm. trash piled up, um, uh, recycling rates went way down and with trash in the streets, you ended up with a lot of civil unrest. Um, people were very upset and then you had the Arab spring. Did that immediately follow some of these attempts? Same time. No kidding. Yeah. And they used, um, the swine flu as the excuse for cracking down on the waste feeding operations, even though, it's just called swine flu. It it's not transmitted from pigs to people. So it's not an example of one. Of, what, what was the zoonotic? This is a it, yes. It's not. It was not. No. That, no despite no. 
all the yes okay good to clear that up yeah <laughs> but i mean because we're seeing this with the coronavirus right now and in fact um you know um i'm let me see if I can figure out who said this, but there was recently a tweet um, from, let's see, um, the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, said mm. that the coronavirus will help accelerate the turn, return of jobs to North America. And you're wondering, well, how, what, what's the mechanism behind <laughs> oh that? Gosh. People get infected and then they want to go work in America? No. The mechanism is that public health crises also have huge trade implications they have big land use implications um i mean i try to plant myself in the heads of people making statements like that to try to like not not because what they're saying is true or well-founded but just to understand even the twisted logic by which they're trying to make what mm -hmm. they say make sense mm -hmm. <laughs> is this just attached to the whole china trade war idea like yes Okay. Yes, and and it's not as if that hasn't been used against the U.S. So another great example of a zoonotic disease, and this is um, research I've done on backyard poultry, is um, there is a disease of um, poultry that it's not well, it's not zoonotic. Um, it can't be passed on to humans, but it is. Um, it has been found in backyard flocks in California, and. Um, exotic Newcastle disease is what it's called mm. and when it makes its way into commercial flocks it's devastating so they have to kill the entire flock they depopulate millions of birds when that happened the first time in California China said we're not we're not going to import mm. any more poultry products from you and there were you know the, the outbreak spread to five different states and there were you know there were huge trade ramifications for that you know, billions of dollars yeah, lost. I can imagine. And there are now new outbreaks. And the reason there are new outbreaks is because local ordinances guide whether or not you can have backyard poultry. And those local ordinances don't uh, tie... The way that if you have a cat or a dog, the ordinances say your cat and your dog needs to be vaccinated for rabies. You need to make sure that you're seeing a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And also... Um, through seeing a veterinarian, that means that if there were some crazy outbreak, your veterinarian would contact you to let you know. But there's nothing like that in place for poultry. There's no mandated, you, you need to be registered with the Humane Society, um, the, the, the ASPCA. This, I, I know this was a, the, there is actually California legislation right now um, and efforts to allow for just what you're talking about, mm -hmm. poultry production at the local scale, mm -hmm. getting, I think, specifically chickens mm -hmm. to restaurants mm -hmm. from the town in which you find the restaurant, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, are, you, are you saying that this what, Newcastle disease, mm -hmm. um, was that more prevalent among localized chicken Production or the outbreaks happen in, with backyard poultry and spread into commercial operations. And the reason for that is that in a commercial operation, you vaccinate the birds in the egg. And uh, when you buy backyard chickens, you buy them. Some people commercially order them and get them in boxes or you buy them at feed stores. And there's no 
regulation that says they need to be vaccinated. In addition, if you vaccinated them, they're mixing with wild birds. So it's quite easy to, you know, to have a, a breakthrough. So at this point, with most poultry production, most livestock and... That knock on the door was Axel Borg. He's a research librarian at UC Davis, and he had actually stopped by Dr. Brinkley's office to give her a book. Uh, Their work definitely has crossover, and I actually thought it would be a great idea to talk to him for the next episode of The Implications. Uh, The topic is viticulture and the wine industry and how it's all going to be affected by climate change. So the implications of that, you'll have to tune in next time. All right, back to Dr. Brinkley. And we have in this paper that we wrote for the Journal of Community Health some solid recommendations for poultry ordinances. And those include, okay, um, the, the limit on the number of birds is kind of silly, I think, but you do need to make sure that owners are providing good housing and ventilation. Food and water is rarely a requirement, which is a real problem because if somebody is hoarding or not taking care of their animals, the... Um, uh, the um, American Society for Prevention of Cruelty Against Animals is the one that would go in and confiscate the animals or charge the owners with abuse. And they can't do that if the municipal regulations don't stipulate that you have to have food and water. So that, mm. that while it seems like a basic no-brainer, there are some real legal implications for not having that. And then another recommendation that we have is that you do all of the permitting and registration through the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty Against Animals because... Make sure it's in compliance from get-go. And then they have a database of who has or doesn't have. They can link up with Extension for advice. Um, UC Davis um, will necropsy your bird for free to find out if something was wrong so they can catch outbreaks very early on. And then that really small fee for permitting, um, which could be annual or could be one-time, um, helps fund the the really important cruelty work that, that the ASPCA does. Right. Unfortunately, this is a really salient news topic. The coronavirus is thought to have spread from an illicit animal meat market in Wuhan, China. Notwithstanding how the government in China has responded to the virus spread, an approach like the one Dr. Brinkley is describing could make such an outbreak much less likely. A One Health approach would permit and regulate localized production of livestock for food, maintaining control over animal health and well-being, as well as the issues related to the health of the people who will eventually consume the food produced by those animals. Regulated local production with health safety guaranteed by local ordinances would make it much less likely that producers and consumers turn toward an unregulated black market, which is susceptible to animal abuse and hazards to both animal and human health, resulting in things like the coronavirus outbreak. So you have outlined ideas for legislation and, yes. you know, it could come down to local policy. It, it has to be, because that, that is where those policies right. lie. They are all local. So as of right now, are there federal or state level restrictions that make it illegal to have these farms that Directly, I mean, it's not like marijuana. No, okay, yeah. <laughs> I know you can you can buy eggs from your local farm. Oh yes, okay. Yeah. So what you're getting at is the selling, not just the yeah. having so of the birds, but the selling. The yes. Right so there's, um, and this is often a problem for backyard sellers, is there are particular grades of the eggs, and if you're a backyard seller, it's cost prohibitive to have your eggs graded, but they have to be graded if you're going to sell them. 
So you run into this issue where to the public say, market. I mean, because I have a feeling that these roadside egg stands, there's no stamp on them. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, they're selling them for eight. You saying they fly under the radar? <laughs> <laughs> too many bad no, food puns. It's in poor taste, really. <laughs> I, I I appreciated that. Um, but y- yes, but it I'm is sure illegal. we're operating flying under the radar. Yes, so. yes. Um, and and I've met people who tried to make a go of it with, you know, um, beautiful heritage flocks, delicious eggs, but they just couldn't make the regulations make sense for grading the eggs in order to sell. Right. What Meat producers have done is you can do something like buy a share in a cow, so that way you own the cow, and then there there aren't these same stipulations about risk. So there might be a you buy a share in the coop or something like that, or a co-op, a co-op, a co-op of co-ops, a coop co-op, <laughs> a coop co-op. I mean, as great of a pun as that is, that actually sounds like it yeah. could be a viable alternative. Oh, absolutely, because a lot of your work has had to do with redistributing the economic power associated with food systems and distribution of food Mm -hmm. and sources of food. Yes. So if you were talking, just sticking with the example of poultry, Mm -hmm. if you were to try to supply a whole town, let's say just the size of Davis, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a massive student population here. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, Mm -hmm. the coho over there putting out food to feed thousands of students every day. Mm -hmm. Is it viable to produce food on the local level for local consumption while meeting regulations for ASPCA for mm-hmm. you know whatever food safety at the state level or local level exists? Mm-hmm. I mean that the viability is the big question for me. If there was a place that was going to make that happen, hundred percent local, it would be Yolo County yeah. because we're the most agriculturally biodiverse county in the U.S. Um, yeah, our, why is that beneficial? Um, because we produce a lot of different things, so we can meet a lot of our needs locally. The the reason so local does not necessarily equate environmentally friendly. It doesn't necessarily equate ethically raised. But what it does equate is dollars staying in the local economy and forming much tighter knit relationships where there's this potential for feedback, where you can then start moving the needle on ethically sourced or um, environmentally friendly production. And that's what you've, we've seen when we've traced what Alice Waters has done with Chez Panis. You know, she didn't start off with a local focus, but she ended up going with a local focus by buying through Monterey Market, which Bill Fujimoto ran. And then those personal relationships with the farmers pushed her into organics and sustainably sourced food. And because she is so charismatic, she brought you know, the restaurant industry and and food really in general along with it. And and then that has also coincided with the rebirth of farmers markets and sourcing locally. So there are connections, but they're not, um, just because you buy local doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be ethical or environmental, but it's, it's, it, it, you were able to then have a conversation with the farmer and say, well, it's like you said, once those dollars are kind of relocated back to where the production is happening, mm-hmm. going going green, as it were, mm-hmm. becoming eco-friendly, creating an ecologically sustainable, you know, system of 
growing animals, growing plants, mm-hmm. crops that are in in sync with their natural environment, that costs money. It does. Uh, and and it, oftentimes it can give money in surprising ways too. Well, so we see this with so. multifunctional agriculture. So I, I, my research traces um, food production on farms to the first point of sale. And we're doing this for every county in California. And we've done it on the East Coast as well. And what we've seen is that um, these networks of food production and supply have profound implications for food security networks. So food banks often happen to be hubs in the local food network because smaller farms donate, they're involved in that charitable aspect, which has a huge support um, function, which is very much needed now as we're seeing the federal government cut supplemental nutrition assistance programs by over 25%. And I mean, if, if local communities don't pull together and help um, low-income families get um, healthy food, then then that has repercussions for schools, for public health agencies on down the line. But it's not just that. So these farms that are engaged, it's not only that they're working with food banks sometimes, um, but it's also that if you were selling milk and you had a thriving um, uh, direct-to-consumer market, you're going to move into yogurt. You're going to move into ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, you are going to start making sure that you have inverted air systems on your dairy so that it doesn't smell so bad. You're going to do farm tours. You might have a bed and breakfast. I mean, this is yeah. people are going to want to get married there and take pictures with the cows. This, totally. It just becomes this whole thing. And this is not just California. This is small farming in Southern France or sure. in Italy. Um, where people want that connection with food and nature. and um, So, I mean, I love the sound of that. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds, for better or for worse, like utopic. Oh, yeah. It's full belly farm. <laughs> but, I mean, going back to the question of viability, like, I would assume that technology exists today that did not exist decades ago when a lot of the regulations in place and the corporate lobbying mm-hmm. in place made it so that you couldn't produce food locally, mm-hmm. legally. Mm-hmm. Um, technology probably exists today that would allow you to ensure safety of your food mm-hmm. at a lower cost than it probably would have been decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, is the main obstacle now legislation? What, like, what do you target right now? If you, have, if you have to choose a spot to point your lobbying gun, it's not, it's not one thing. And I don't think that every farm should be a small, locally-oriented farm. We need those farms that are big, that are going to do a really good job with bulk supply. Um, and those farms are also, in many ways, integral to um, local economics. So a really good example is Durst Organics here in Yolo. And um, he's also very heavily involved in the food bank and donating to the food bank is an organic farmer. He does it at scale. Um, that's important to do that as well. So it, it's not a, I, they oftentimes small and large scale get pitted against each other and there's, there's room for all of it. Yeah. Um, that there doesn't need to be that kind of dichotomy. I don't think, I mean, I think the real issue with farming is that land is very expensive mm. and farming does not give you a lot of funding so the way that California has gone about this is to um, 
there's a Williamson Act, state legislature said we will fund uh, counties to purchase development rights to keep land in farming. There are also American Farmland Trust does this as well to help support farmers um, in farming. And then there's growth boundaries that cities have in addition to purchasing development rights. So there's a local estate, there are federal funds into um, farmland preservation, there are tax exemptions for keeping land and agriculture. All of that is needed, especially in California where mm -hmm. land is so expensive to keep farms and agriculture. Um, without that, it wouldn't make sense to farm it. You would build a suburb over it, which sure. would be a real shame considering the 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 what California is capable of producing, most of the fruits and vegetables for the entire country. I'm going to have to process a lot of this <laughs> mentally following our conversation. Uh, but to close things out, I want to know what questions you're asking yourself to guide research these days. Um, one of the things we didn't get to talk about is a paper that I hope will come out soon, which is on street food vending. Mm. And I think this is a really interesting topic because... Um, the LA Street Food Vending Association has lobbied for a long time to legalize street food vending. Street food vending is a practice the world over, um, and it largely caters to low-income communities. Since food trucks have arrived on the scene the last 20 years, it's also become a gourmet food destination, a way for um, people who want to break into food yeah. to start their own totally. restaurant and then eventually get a brick and mortar. But unfortunately, um, what we found, we gathered all the municipal codes for every city and county in California governing street food. And most places make it illegal. They make it illegal by requiring um, that the, the street food vendor, the truck move every five to 10 minutes, like the city of Davis does, which is a real, it's basically outlawing it. They make it illegal by saying you can't operate near a park or a school or an intersection, which basically makes it illegal and keeps the vendors away from the most lucrative places, most lucrative places, yeah. plus places to wash their hands or use the restroom. Sure. So that's not good for their health. It's not good for the health of their customers. And then they also make it illegal by having these extra labor laws on top where they say, okay, if you want to open a brick and mortar restaurant, you know, of course you need the licensing, the health inspection, all that is true for street food vendors. But if you wanted to vend on the street, you need a fingerprinting background check, a letter to the sheriff's department that says you're an upstanding citizen and witness by, by three different people. That's, That's a lot of hoops. There's a lot of hoops and also requiring that somebody is, um, is, um, is, is a le has legal status to be in the U.S. is, a, is yet another well, that's a whole other hoop to jump through. So when the L.A. Street Food Vending Association couldn't make headway at the city level, even working with the Food Policy Council, yeah. they turned to the state. And just this past year, the state enacted legislation that said, which I think this is really powerful, cities and counties are not allowed to regulate street food vending for reasons other than public health. And because more than half of the cities and counties are not in compliance, they need to change. Who's um, enforcing that? Cities and counties are enforcing it. Well, I mean, so you said that was... A who's enforcing the change? Who's enforcing the yeah. new California Well, that, that's just it. We'll see yeah. the, We'll see what the state does in terms of enforcing that. But people can that's now... That's going to be a long... It is. But imagine if, imagine if California had something like that around housing that said, hey, look, you need to permit a certain amount of low-income housing 
and the, California does stipulate for every city and county, this is how much low-income housing you need. Right. But then the this gets back to yeah. the general plan project. There's no way to actually read cohesively what's in the plan and who is actually permitted. So it, it, all I'm saying is I, I, very, very local control is really important for proof of concept and doing the right things. But sometimes communities, for various reasons, usually NIMBYism, mm. don't want to democratize their food system. Or, or entrenched financial interests. Exactly. Like the restaurant industry. Yes, know? the restaurant industry. And really and truly, um, restaurant industries fought farmer's markets, like the Davis Farmer's Market, because they thought it was going to steal business. And it didn't. It augmented, because every Wednesday really? and Saturday, That's when we idea. have our farmer's market, it draws people out. You know, they're going to do their grocery shopping. Um, maybe they'll eat at the farmer's market, but they'll likely... You know, go to go to but the restaurants nearby as well. Business, yes, especially in a place that, that where everything's so close together. Yeah, and Portland has seen this too with food trucks, mm -hmm. where they are be, they are able to use food to revitalize um, neighborhoods. Sacramento has done this with underpasses. I mean, it's food is a powerful tool to draw people out to have an experience, and as soon as you have people out and on the street, they're more likely to spend dollars. Um, so I think cities are slowly starting to realize this. The problem is deploying this economic development tool mm -hmm. strategically in a way that is fair to the vendors and in a way that's equitable to those neighborhoods because some neighborhoods don't want to be flipped. <laughs> I mean, I like the sound of net economic benefits and neighborhood development. I, I, all, it sounds like there are a lot of upsides yeah. to changing the way cities regulate these things or don't regulate them for that matter. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it has to be strategic. Mm -hmm. So, wow, this has been fascinating. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I hope we can have another conversation about this once I've done more homework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brink. Yeah, you're welcome. Once again, thank you so much to Dr. Catherine Brinkley for sitting down and recording a conversation for the first episode of The Implications. I can't wait to see what she does with the City of Davis as a member of their planning commission, and I'll be keeping my eyes peeled to that update she mentioned to the city's general plan, informed by her One Health perspective, of course, not to mention the report in the Governor's Office of Planning and Research about all of California's general plans. So, the implications of a One Health perspective are many. It represents more than just a holistic approach to planning human settlement and respect for animal and environmental health. It's a shift in priorities. Like Dr. Brinkley said, localized production can redistribute economic power from silos outside of the consumer's community back into that community if local policies and ordinances are adjusted to allow for this. Something like allowing food trucks and street vendors to set up in places where they can be more competitive. The market economy in which we exist isn't going anywhere. But there are restrictive laws and ordinances that have been pushed by restaurants and moneyed interests to prevent this kind of competition. Even the idea of district heating and energy, or combined heating and power, those hold the potential to decrease costs in the long run for producers and consumers alike, but they're being held back by the more immediate incentive of short-term profit. Of course, I'm no expert, but it doesn't seem right or efficient that any one business type be protected or advantaged over another in an economy that is built on competition. The better product wins out, and people speak with their wallets and, in the case of food, their stomachs. 
So I'm going to leave you with two things that I've got stuck in my mind. One that has been there for a long time and one that's been there since my interview with Dr. Brinkley. The first is from an interview that I conducted with one of my professors for the Miss Radio podcast. He eventually became my master's thesis advisor. It's Dr. Kent Glenzer. You can listen to this episode in the feed from Miss Radio. But what I remember is asking him a question along the lines of, if you could change just one thing about how governments and non-governmental agencies plan their programs and measure their results, what would it be? His answer, they need to shift their time frames and stop measuring results in a three to five year window. This is an inherently short-sighted criteria resulting in rushed measurement of success and failure. This relates to the second idea percolating from my conversation with Dr. Brinkley in that she mentioned localized production and consumption of agricultural goods being economically just, but not necessarily ecologically sound, at least not in the short term. As we established, it takes money and investment to, quote, go green. This is the kind of money that doesn't just appear out of nowhere for localized producers and sellers. It takes time. The implication of this, as far as I can see it, economic justice and ecological justice may not be achievable simultaneously, but if they're planned for carefully with an understanding for the policy and resource needs for accomplishing both, it can be done. This does mean a long-term outlook for planning and policymaking, like the one advocated for by Dr. Glenzer, but through the one health lens that Dr. Brinkley is trying to promote. All right, that's enough for now. This has been my attempt to assess the implications of Dr. Brinkley's work. There will be more, <laughs> uh, because there are a lot of other people, frontier researchers looking to change the way local governments plan and national governments plan. Um, but I really appreciate your listening. Thank you so much. The implications will be back soon. <laughs>